seems like the world is on fire. And yet, it's dying. There's a hope that's alive. Life on fire. Well, good morning, good morning. I ask that you would take out of your program your notes today, because you're going to need those, and we're going to have some fill-in-the-blanks. But what I want you to do when you first take that out is I want you to go ahead and look at the title at the top. The title at the top of today's message is this, that the power of point four will blow your mind. The power of point four will blow your mind. So you're going to have to wait till we get to point four uh, before that happens, but uh, what I want you to know is a title like that is what we call a clickbait title. In marketing, that's what marketers use, right, in social media or other things to get you to click the information. You're like, oh, well, if I don't read or see whatever is, exists there, then, then, you know, I won't, something essential that I need, I won't know about it. So you click it, and then they give you whatever information they want to give you anyway. It doesn't really have a lot to do with uh, the actual message, but it's called a clickbait title. You'll remember that. I guarantee you, you'll see some clickbait titles uh, this week now that you're aware of that marketing concept. But the question I want you to understand today, we just saying, God, you know, I'll let your fire down in my soul. I want more of you, God. The truth is we have all of God that we need available to us, but the point is in your life and my life, sometimes we don't tap into the power that God already presents and makes available to us. We don't lock into it. We basically just say, hey, God, I'm going I'm to do things in my own power. I'm going to be a little bit self-sufficient. So the question I want to answer today is this. How do you know if God's power is at work in you? How do you know if the power of God's Holy Spirit is at work in your life? Because here's what I guarantee I guarantee you probably know when it's not working in you. It's not working in you because maybe in your life you're self-sufficient. You're being carried along by life. You're like, I got it. I'm all good. Maybe for some of you, you're being carried along by some friends or some people around you. You're like, it may not even be my faith. I might kind of have secondhand faith. I'm just being carried along by these people who seem more spiritual than I do. And you're like, I'm all good. I'm all good. And then you get horrible news or bad news or life happens or difficult things happen in your life in that arena. And all of a sudden, you cry out to God. God, I got this horrible news. And so now all of a sudden, my need for God, God, I thought I was doing fine. But you realize in that moment, I've been living out of my own self-sufficiency. I've been living out of my own strength, my own ideas, my own power. I kind of cruised. I kind of plateaued in some ways. And then you cry out to God. See, different things make different people cry out to God. Sometimes it's crises, and so that's when you cry out to God. God, I need you because it's a crisis. Other times it's overwhelming responsibilities, and they make you cry out to God. Other times it's an impossible situation. God, I haven't seemed like I've needed you so much, but right now I need you, and you begin to cry out to God. For others of you, it's when you come face to face with just how bad your sin really is and how awfully your sin affects other people. When you come face to face with that, then you go, God, I just need you. I just need you. Because you realize that sin is real and it affects other people. And so you cry out for God. 
Others of you, you've got a kid going sideways. And so you cry out for God and you're hoping on the inside. You're hoping this is what you do when you cry to God. God, I've got this kid and they're going sideways. It's not going well. And so you're crying out to God in that moment. You're like, God, I just hope that your power available to me is not just a clickbait title. I hope that your power available to me is real. I hope that there's something there that I'm crying out to you that can actually make a difference in my life. And if you're like me, then sometimes you have cried out to God and you haven't sensed that God's power was available to you. It's a good thing that the truth is not based on how you or I feel, but the truth is based based on the word of God. If you have a Bible, open with me as we're looking through the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll begin with verse 6. Here's why you need this sermon. You need this sermon because you need to know and you need to experience that the power of point four is going to blow your mind. Not only that, I want to strengthen and encourage you to remain true to the faith. See, part of your spiritual growth, part of my spiritual growth, is that we will be tried, tested, and tempted. That's called formation, that God uses experiences in our life, that he's going to use those to build spiritual muscle. And sometimes we're going to do well, and other times we're going to fail. Sometimes we're going to skip out on a particular exercise because we just don't want to face that. But God's saying, I want you to remain true to the faith. Paul is writing to Timothy as a spiritual father and a mentor to this young pastor. He's writing to him and he's saying this, Timothy, I want you to grow your trust in the Lord so that you have the power available to endure through impossible situations, through tough circumstances, and through huge responsibilities. I want you to remain true to the faith. I want you to make it. That's my hope, my prayer for you is that God would strengthen you today, that God would encourage you today, that his power is available for you. Here's what I hope. I hope that you're not just hanging on. I've got a faith. I just hope I'm hanging on until I die or hope I'm hanging on until the end. No, I hope that you're not just hanging on, but that you're beginning to understand how God's power can be available to you and set your life on fire through this series. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. We looked at this last week, but he says again, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. So God's spirit gives us three things, power and love and self-discipline. Those are available to you. Those are available to me. You say, my life isn't uh, self-disciplined. I don't have a properly prioritized mind and a way of thinking and a way of behaving. Well, God's power is available for you in that area. God's power is available for you to show love to people who are opposed to you. God's power is available to you in your life. And so I want today to talk about the the results of God's power. Last week we identified what is God's power available to us, and it's those three areas. Now I want to talk about what's the result. So if I get that, if I've got power, if I've got love, if I have a properly prioritized mind, that self-discipline, what then are the results of that kind of power? As Paul is writing to Timothy, he's saying, listen, this is available to you, but I want you to know that there are some results that when you get that, you're going to have in your life. You say, well, what in the world are those results. If you're taking notes today, you're going to find that number one, the result of God's power is the strength to overcome embarrassment. You know when most guys get mad? It's when they're embarrassed first. Isn't that an interesting response? 
that we get embarrassed and then we get mad because we got embarrassed. It's like it has to do with our pride, and maybe it's that way for you ladies as well. But for guys, for sure, for the guys I know, a lot of times they're going to have a negative reaction, an anger reaction to embarrassment, to being made fun of or disrespected. They might think it's all sorts of things, but the bottom line is sometimes we get embarrassed, and sometimes our reaction to embarrassment is actually anger. But Paul is writing to Timothy, and Paul's in some embarrassing situation. He's in prison. He's writing to Timothy, he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought to life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And that is why I'm suffering as I am. There is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. He's writing and he says, listen, do not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of my circumstances. When you and I overcome embarrassment, it's then that we willingly enter suffering, right? When you overcome embarrassment, maybe you present an idea and it gets ridiculed at first. When you get over being ridiculed, it's then that you'll wade in and defend your idea. If you are embarrassed, then you're going to pull back and not continue to speak about your idea. If you can't get over embarrassment, you're going to kind of wilt. You're either going to fight or flight. That's what's going to happen. But the power of God will give you and I strength to overcome embarrassment. This is why Paul says to Timothy, join me in suffering. What's he saying? Hey, come to prison with me? No. Timothy has responsibilities. He's leading the church in Ephesus. He needs to stay there as the pastor. But he's saying, listen, I'm in prison. Paul is saying to Timothy, he's saying, join me in suffering. In other words, when the power of God, of love and self-discipline comes upon you, then you have strength to overcome embarrassment. And when you do that, then you'll join me in suffering. So you and I, you realize that when you believe in Jesus... You're making some choices. When you believe in Jesus in this day and age, and when you believe in Jesus in this culture, when you believe in Jesus in this world, that by the way, Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you, it hated me first. When you believe in Jesus, you step into the arena of ridicule as a believer. The arena of a man or a woman choosing sexual purity in the age of promiscuity. You're going to face ridicule. You choose to show messy grace and extend love to people who ridicule your beliefs and your values when you accept Jesus Christ. You're going to be in embarrassing circumstances. But the power of God gives you and I opportunity to overcome embarrassment. Listen, the powerful person is not the most outspoken person. The powerful person is the person who's not threatened. By ridicule. They're not threatened by somebody who gets angry at them. Right? Parents in the room, if you're in a power struggle with your kid, 
the moment that the kid dawns on them, they realize, you know what, they can yell, they can scream, they can do whatever, but it's not going to change your instruction. It's not going to change your mind. In that moment, they're going to realize, you're not threatened by all my yelling and screaming, so that didn't work. So the kids will try to find another avenue to get what they want. But if you have a kid who's ongoing yelling, screaming, fussing, that kind of thing, sometimes you're caving in. You get a little embarrassed, and they know that. That's why they do it in the store. Right? I got you right where I wanted. If I can embarrass you, but once they find out that you're not threatened by their misbehavior, in fact, that you'll address that misbehavior, you're the one who has the power. The powerful person is a person who's not threatened. And here's what happens all too often in our culture. Somebody gives an idea that disagrees to the biblical values that you hold and you get threatened. And then you react. And when you get threatened and you react, you oftentimes will prove yourself to be foolish. And God says, no, no, no. The powerful person is the one who's not threatened. The powerful person is the one who will wade into that conversation, who has the power by God's Holy Spirit to overcome any embarrassment and love somebody still. To still engage them, not just write them off. To still care for them as Jesus would. You have the power to overcome embarrassment. So the first result of God's power is, again, the power to overcome strength, to overcome embarrassment. The second result of God's power is suffering without folding. Suffering without folding. Do Christians suffer today? Culturally, Christians do suffer today. Internationally, Christians suffer today. In fact, in the nation of India, because of governmental changes there and new regulations against proselytizing, Compassion International, who receives uh, what they do in India, comes, is sourced by uh, international money. They've cut off that kind of thing. So international money cannot help in a proselytizing ministry in a large organization like Compassion International. They have pulled out of India. Here's what, let me tell you what that means on the ground. That means that those kids who through compassion have been sponsored, who've been getting care, who've been going to school, who've been getting educated and fed and clothed and loved and hear the good news of Jesus, what it means for them is they go back to living oppressed. They go back to being ridiculed. They go back to hard circumstances in that nation. And we are praying that God would again open the doors for Compassion International to be able to reach to those who, again, will have no power, but they will have the power of God. So now what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to wade into suffering without folding. Life changed. The rules changed. And now they're going to have to, the good that they saw that they had, they're going to have to wade into it. But by the power of God, they don't have to fold. By the power of God, they are not defeated. In fact, by the power of God, they are overcomers but they will have to wade into suffering, right? Join me in suffering, Paul said to Timothy. In the same way, there will be other believers who will say in India, who will say to those children, join me. We're, we're all in this together. We need each other. In fact, our, we need to come and pray. Our prayers are going to change. Our lives are going to change. God has given us a brotherhood or sisterhood to stand together that we didn't have before the gospel came to us. What are they going to do? They're going to suffer, but they're going to suffer without folding. Is Timothy to withstand suffering in his own power? No. Then in whose power? Well, he's to withstand it in God's power. Paul himself is in prison, 
But here's a principle I want you to catch. If you don't catch anything else today, then catch this. Paul is in prison, but let me ask you this question. Whose prisoner does Paul consider himself to be? Look again at the text. 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, what? Help me out here. Me, what? His prisoner. No, no, uh, Timothy's like, Paul, that must be a typographical error because you're Rome's prisoner. You're a prisoner of Rome. You're a prisoner of your jailers. You're a prisoner of the people who've oppressed you. You're the victim of all that system. No, 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 no. Paul says, no. Don't be ashamed of me his prisoner. He sees himself on assignment even though his circumstances are a bummer. Right? So let me ask you, when you suffer, how do you and I suffer without folding? So here's a question for you today. Whose medical patient are you really? Who is your real boss? See, a change in perspective makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, whose medical patient are you? Who is your real boss? And maybe for you, you've lost a father uh, or a mother, a parent in your life. Uh, Maybe you have had a troubled father. Let me ask this question. Who is your father? No, not Darth Vader. That was a good try, though. (laughs) Nice one there. He's not your father. God is. Whose spouse are you really? Think about that for just a minute. Honestly, whose spouse are you really? When we begin to go, this is my spouse, or I'm the spouse of that person, and we begin to make them the enemy, what if you view yourself and your circumstance and your lot in life, and you say, I am the bride of Christ. And my responsibility is to be the bride of Christ in this marriage. Man, that might change everything. Whose spouse are you really? Who really represents you in court? So many people, oh, well, my legal team or my attorney or my this. No, who really represents you in court? Who really is your financial advisor? See, the Bible talks more, by the way, about finances than it talks about heaven and hell. Did you know that? So you think God has an interest in being your source, your financial advisor? Who really is in charge of your salvation? Is it you? Is it your performance? Is it your good works? Or is it Jesus Christ and his work on the cross alone? Who has given you five purposes and enables you to live your calling? It's God. I want you to catch again that Paul says, even in these difficult circumstances, as you're joining me in suffering, please understand, Paul saw himself as God's prisoner. And there's something going on in your life, there's something going on in your world where you're seeing yourself constrained by the power of people or the power of circumstance. And maybe today God wants to give you a shot in the arm and he wants to strengthen you and say, you're my student. You're my medical. I'm your medical advisor. You're really under my care. Yes, you're seeing doctors. Yes, you're doing this. Yes, you're doing that. But really, you're my patient.
man, can we trust God in that way? See, the evidence of God's power working in you is that you can make it through suffering without ultimately folding. Through the lows, through the setbacks, through the failures, through the challenges, you find strength by God's Holy Spirit to rise again. God's in the business of bringing dead things to life. Some of you in this room, you're like, my spiritual life, it's been dead. It's been dead for a long time. I'm cold spiritually on the inside. But the fact that you're here today, the fact that God's Holy Spirit says, listen, hey, I'm in the business of bringing dead things to life. I can take that little coal that's barely warm in you and I can bring fire back into your life. I can give you a life on fire. I'm in the business of bringing dead things to life. It's what I do. It's what God does. It's a God who can speak things into creation and they are created by his very word. He can bring your life, my life, back from the edge, back from the pit, back from failure, back from just the trauma that you have faced. God will bring you back to life. And he's going to enable you and I to go through life because life's relentless, but God is good. And he will enable us to go through life without ultimately folding. You know what the enemy's main line is? Give up. Give up. Give up and give in. So he wants you to give up first, then he wants you to give in to whatever the bait is. That's the enemy's main lie. Why do you think that's his main lie? Because at one point, he gave up. He gave in. He thought he could be like God. And his pride got him cast out of heaven. And ever since then, he's been God's enemy. And the thing that he hates the most is his children. That's you and me. So we are going to face suffering in this world. But God's power gives us the ability to suffer without folding. So we have strength to overcome embarrassment. We have strength to suffer without folding. The third result of God's power is that you and I can invest with God and be guaranteed a return on it. Invest with God and be guaranteed a return on it. Timothy writes, or Paul writes this to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 12. He said, listen, this is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. The term that he used there, the term entrusted, is what you and I mean when we make a deposit at the bank. When you entrust something, it's the same thing. When you make a deposit at the bank, you're saying, not only am I making this deposit, I'm trusting you with it, but you better be federally insured. There better be some, you know, if I want my money back, I better be able to get it back. I'm trusting, I'm entrusting this money to you. Well, what do we put on deposit with God? What do we put on deposit through Jesus? Number one, we will give ourselves and complete salvation. That salvation is up to Christ. So God, I give you me. Why do we say that? A lot of times when we're introducing ourselves to God for the first time, when we're saying, God, I'm surrendering, I'm going to give my life to you. The reason that we do that, the reason we say, God, I give you me is because you're making a deposit. You're saying, God, I give you. I trust you with the saving of my soul. God, I trust you with my life. And I don't have it all together, and I don't know where it all is, but I'm going to trust you with me. The first thing we do is give ourselves and complete salvation. The second thing that Paul was entrusting to God is the message and power of the gospel. Paul says, I'm on assignment. 
Paul is on assignment speaking to potentially other prisoners. He's speaking certainly to whoever is his guard or his probation officer at this time. That all God's giving him a, still an opportunity to preach the good news. God is still giving him an opportunity to share the gospel of Christ. And he trusts the gospel. If he's trusting his circumstances, he would say, oh, I'm in prison. I can't share. Look at me. I'm in prison. Nobody's going to take me seriously. I'm a prisoner. So like, I'm a felon. I'm not respected in society. He could have thrown in the towel, right? No. He says, I know the God, and I know the deposit with whom I've given the trust. That's the message of the gospel. See, Paul knows. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, um, I hope. He didn't say, oh, I hope and pray. Or I really am hoping that this will come to pass. No, he's saying, I know that this deposit that I've given will have a return on that investment. He said this way, I know whom I have believed. He knows God personally. He doesn't know the concept of God. He knows God. He knows him through experience. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. So he's saying, Timothy, join me. Wait in with me. You too know that God. It's a good thing. So we have strength to overcome embarrassment, to suffer without folding, to invest with God and be guaranteed to return on it. And are you ready? Are you ready? Because here, the PowerPoint 4, it's going to blow your mind. PowerPoint 4 is going to blow your mind. You ready? Here it is. Number four, the very words of the Bible are inspired by God. The very words of the Bible are inspired by God. Now, for some of you, you're like, Dave, that didn't blow my mind. That, uh, that's a given for me. For some of you, you're like, that's a given. I understand the words of the Bible are inspired by God. Others of you are like, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that the words of the Bible are inspired by God. But let's see what Paul, one of the authors in the Bible, says about the word. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he says, What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Paul's saying, listen, there is a pattern going on here. He says, what you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. So what, what does it mean, a pattern of sound teaching? Well, pattern is like a sketch or it's like an outline. Paul's saying, listen, you've seen this in me, Timothy, because you've traveled with me. You've seen me preach. You've seen, but it's not just what Timothy has seen. It's also what Timothy has read. You say, well, what's the pattern? What's the, what's the outline of the sound teaching and the presentation of the gospel? Well, Timothy is reading right now one of the books, one of the letters from Paul that are inspired by God. Within it is the pattern of the gospel. Timothy has also seen the letters that float around the early church that have been going on. He has the scriptures from before. He has these letters that become the New Testament. He has seen and he has read and he has heard and he has experienced the pattern of sound teaching. They exist in the written words of the Bible through letters that Paul and the other apostles wrote. The word sound, he says sound teaching. What's the word sound? What is sound teaching? Sound teaching literally means healthy. So what's the pattern for healthy teaching? It's literally the nourishment that every believer needs. What's the nourishment that every believer needs? It's the very words of God. 
And here's why this is going to blow your mind. Because there are all too many believers who believe in the concept of the word of God, but they don't believe the very words of God. They're not nourishing themselves by the words of God. They don't read the words of God. They don't see it as a value in their daily experience. They kind of have some ideas about the Bible, but they're not in the Bible, reading the Bible. And I want to let you know that the very words of the Bible are inspired by God. We are to hold to the words of the scripture, not just the concept please catch that you're to hold in your life to the very words of the bible not just the concept why what would you say to the person who takes the view that the words of the bible are not really important it's only the concept about the bible that counts see it's tempting for you and i to want to get the concept right Sometimes we come to church and we're like, okay, 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 okay. I didn't have time to read all this, so pastor, just give me the concept. And then what happens is you internalize it and you think, do I agree or disagree with that concept? Am I going to obey that or am I not? Do I buy into that or don't I? Because I want to make a judgment. If you give me the concept, then I just want to make a judgment on it. But there's power when you and I look and say, these are the very words of God. Because this idea about agreeing with a concept is how false teaching starts. This is how false teaching gets just one degree off. And then it goes, right? Because it's not the very words of the Bible. It's like the general, I, no, listen, within the general concepts of the Bible, we have more freedoms than we think we do. And so what happens, false teaching says, you're okay to do that and still believe in Jesus. You don't really need to believe Jesus as the only way to salvation. That's just one concept in the Bible. There's other ways, right? See how false teaching starts to take off. The very words of the Bible are inspired by God. Think about this false idea for a minute. People say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Wasn't it Rick Warren who said, I think in our teaching that we went through in our group time, our circle time, recently, wasn't it him who said, well, let me be honest, you can be sincerely wrong. Right? Sincerity has nothing to do with it. There are people all over the world who are very sincere about things, but they are sincerely wrong. Again, that would be just one degree off. And that's things that doesn't lead to truth and it leads to heavy consequences. Peter, who is the one who denied Christ and then was restored by Christ after his resurrection, writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. Okay, so let me just get this, get this crystal clear in your mind. Because, you know, later in this very book, Paul is also crystal clear with Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. There's this picture that God breathes, God speaks. When you speak, if you put your hand in front of your mouth, if you speak, you'll feel air coming out. That's what happens. When you speak, breath comes out of your mouth, and Scripture is God-breathed. So some people say, yes, well, but humans wrote it down. Well, yes, humans wrote but it was God who breathed. It was God who spoke. All scripture, the very words of the Bible, listen to me, are inspired by God. And there's not just power in the concepts of the Bible. There's power in the very words of the Bible. 
And once we get away from being a conceptual follower of Christ to a fully devoted Christ follower, we're going to realize that I have power in my life because I'm finally believing the very words of the Bible. I'm being nourished by the very words of the Bible. I'm praying the very words of the Bible. That's where the power is. The very words of the Bible are inspired, breathed, and spoken by our all-powerful God. They are an extension of who he is. Jesus himself is the word, the breath, the, the word of God become flesh. So in God's arena, in God's word, the words he speaks are as much a part of him as he is himself. When Christ, the word, becomes flesh, when God comes to earth and becomes flesh to dwell among people, to sacrifice himself and take upon our, himself our punishment for our sin, that is the word of God become flesh according to John chapter 1. The word was with God and the word became flesh and lived among us. The words of the Bible are inspired by God. So the question we ask today, the real mind-blowing thing, hopefully for you today, is actually point five. Here's the question. Am I a conceptual follower? Or am I becoming a fully devoted Christ follower? Am I a conceptual follower or am I becoming a fully devoted Christ follower? That's the question. See, if you only want the concept that the embers of the coal in your heart, that thing is going to go out, the gifts that God's given you. If you just want to grab the concepts and just be like, oh, God, empower my gift, well, it's not really going to happen. God wants people who are fully devoted Christ followers, those who are becoming that. See, we haven't all arrived. We haven't all made it. We're not all there. In fact, we don't actually get there until God brings us into presence with him. Amen? That's when we're free from this body of death. That's when we're free from sin. That's when the tensions of life are gone. What a great day that will be. But until then, God loves us too much to leave us where we are, and we are becoming more and more like Christ. But part of that participation of becoming like Christ is applying what the very words of the Bible say. So you fan into flame your spiritual life. You'll get a life on fire. You fan it into flame by the very words of the Bible, not merely the concepts. Paul gives us a contrast. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy 1.15. He says, you know, he's writing to Timothy, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. So he names two guys that Timothy would know. He's saying, everybody's left me. Everybody's deserted me. In a sense, he's saying, listen, these, the results of their life are showing that they are simply conceptual followers. They didn't last. They didn't endure suffering without folding. What do they do? They bailed. They abandoned. They left. They walked away. A conceptual follower, when faced with suffering, will wander. But then he gives a contrast. He says this in verse 16. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anisiphorus because he often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in, in Ephesus. Paul is saying this guy... 
Here's two, you know, he gives, here's two guys who deserted me. They were conceptual followers. But here's a guy who wanted to follow and apply the very words of God while in prison. As Jesus said, remember those in prison as if you yourself were suffering. So in the same way, this guy searches for Paul. He finds him. He seeks him out. He visits him. And Paul says, this guy refreshed me. You know what the word refreshed literally means? I wish it was translated how it literally means. Because the word refreshed here means, literally means, it, he caused me to breathe easier. Take a breath for a moment. Let it out. Isn't that what happens when somebody encourages you? It causes you to breathe easier. We say the word refresh. Oh, they refresh me. It was so refreshing to spend time with that. But why? Because they caused you to breathe easier. Listen, one of the main markers of the church being the church, being the hands and feet of Jesus. Why were so many people attracted to Jesus? I think he made them breathe easier. Those who hated God and would always be opposed to God, he made them breathe harder. They got all upset. They got all threatened. They got all upset and angry and they hated him. But for those who would have ears to hear, those who would have hearts to respond, by the power of God, he began to breathe easier. It's why we need each other. See, some of us think, oh, I can be self-sufficient. I can follow God. No, no, no. Listen, you in your life, you need people who will help you breathe easier. Why do we say get in a circle group during the week? Not just come to church. Come to church. God might remind you some things that, hey, I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen you. But when you and I are in a circle group during the week, that's times that we have relationship with people. And guess what happens? They encourage you and you breathe easier. In the same way, you encourage them and they breathe easier. We were not meant to do it alone. Here's Paul. He's in prison. He's saying, listen, I need the help. I, I can't do this on my own. I'm the apostle Paul. And what did he need? Some guy that we would never know except that he's mentioned right here who came and searched him out and helped him breathe easier, who refreshed him. Listen, when you move from the concept of forgiveness to actually forgiving, you will let go of bitterness, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to breathe easier. See, a conceptual follower should say, I should forgive. But when you move from the concept to actually forgiving, guess what happens? You no longer are carrying that burden that I wish we wouldn't carry. You think you're hurting them, but in reality, you're being hurt by the bitterness that you're carrying. When you move from the concept of prayer to actually getting down, even getting down on your knees and praying, guess what's going to happen? You're going to breathe easier. You're going to breathe. You're going to let that out. You're going to be like, God, I, I, it's not until I get down I begin to cry out for you, but I begin to trust you that it engages your compassion, it engages your power, and I am encouraged and reminded that you're my source, that you're my trust. You're going to breathe easier. When you move from the concept of sexual purity to actually pursuing sexual purity with the help of other people, remember, if you thought you could handle that on your own, you would have fixed it a long time ago, right? Men in the room, hear me. We need other people. Women in the room, hear me. You need other people. And so until you move from the concept of I should be sexually pure, what does that look like to getting other people around you? who will walk with you and pursue purity, guess what's going to happen? You are going to breathe easier. 
when you move from the concept of reading God's word to actually studying and trusting and applying the very words of God in your life, you're going to breathe easier. When you move from the concept of, of tithing to actually the, the application of tithing to say, God, that you let me keep 90%, my goodness, but that, God, I'm going to honor you with the first. Guess what's going to happen to you financially? You're going to breathe easier because you're going to say, I am not the source of everything. My business is not the source of everything. The people around me are not the source of everything. God is my source. And I'm learning to walk with him and trust him as I honor him with the first. You're going to breathe easier when you move from the concept of I should love God and I should love people, when you move from the concept of loving people to actually loving people, guess what will happen? You'll overcome embarrassment or feeling threatened. You will breathe easier and you'll experience joy. You'll be able to wade into a spiritual conversation because you're no longer threatened by somebody else who might just disagree with you. You'll be able to love somebody who absolutely in their lifestyle, their look, everything about them is directly opposed to the things you hold dear. You'll be able to love that person. You'll be able to help that person. You'll be able to care for that person. You will wade in and begin to show messy grace like Jesus did when he waded in and he hung out with tax collectors and sinners. And the religious people condemned him for that. But God's not into religion. Religion doesn't have real power. He's in the power of God's Holy Spirit who said, I loved you enough. I'll wade into your mess. I'll wade into your sin. I'll wade into your world. I'll wade into your mistakes. I'll wade into your outright rebellion. I'll wade into those times you gave me the finger. And I will love you still. Why? Because I'm not threatened. I'm not threatened by the amount of your sin. doesn't threaten me. My love will wade into that because my love is more powerful than your worst sin. We need each other. You need to be in the circle group. Why? Because you can be blessed to be a blessing. You've been blessed by that kind of love from God. Now you be a blessing and you wade in and you help others breathe easier around you. When you refresh someone, listen, you increase your joy factor. You help somebody else breathe easier. It's like adding oxygen to the flame of the gift that God has given to you. How do you fan into flame your spiritual life? Don't go alone. You want to go alone, you'll burn out. But if you want to... Put your life on fire. Start to fan into flame the gift that God's given you. Start to help somebody else breathe easier. Encourage them. Be encouraged by them. Walk with other people. If you want a life on fire, fan into flame somebody else. Help another breathe easier and use the gift that God's given you. But listen, breathing easier first begins by giving ourselves to God. The author of life, the one who put breath in your lungs on the day you were born, the one who formed you in your mother's womb, the one who knows your soul, knows everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, and said, I will love you still. Oh, there is a sweet release when we finally give in to Jesus Christ. When we say, I will give my life to you. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, first of all, for believers in the room, already those who already said that they believe in Jesus Christ. There are some of you in this room, and you have a tension in your breathing between you and God. And it has something to do with your behavior. It has something to do with how righteous you think you are or you aren't. It has something to do with your performance, how well you think you've performed or not. 
And right now, if you're a believer in the room, I want you to know that God loves you, that he's not threatened, and he wants to strengthen and encourage you. He wants to take your heart and bring it to life. Will you let him? Will you just simply, if you're a believer in the room, then will you simply say, God, I, I let you breathe life into me. I want your power. I want your Holy Spirit. I want to walk with you and stop being just a conceptual follower. For some of you in this room, you realize that's all you've ever been. In fact, maybe you're not even a believer. Maybe you're not really actually a Christ follower. You've just been a conceptual follower and you're faking it out. And you'd hate to get face to face with Jesus someday and say, Hey, I, I followed your concepts. And he says, Depart from me. I never knew you. My question is, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know the power of his Holy Spirit? If that's you today and you're just saying, hey, listen, I'm realizing that Jesus died for my sin. I want to give myself to him. Maybe you're somebody who's been attending church for quite a while, but you're realizing I've just been following concepts. I don't follow the word of God. Then today, this time, this prayer is for you. If that's you today, then you right where you're seated, pray this, something like this. Jesus, today, I give you me. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. Forgive me of all my sin. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried in the grave, that you rose to new life because you are God. Wash me as white as snow because today I give you 